A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, and welcome to the podcast hour. I'm Richard Scott, and I want to discover all the best stuff to listen to. Each week, armed with your recommendations, I go hunting for great audio storytelling from all over the world and play it to you. And three things I learned from podcasts this week. Number one, flamingos are the species most likely to escape from zoos and not be recaptured. Number two, the drummer on the hit song Louie Louie by the Kingsman drops his drumsticks and swears audibly 54 seconds into the track. And number three, when we talk about a cover version of a song, it refers back to a time where you literally copied the original record and tried to cover it up with your own version in a record shop. More podcast-based wisdom in future shows, but on this week's... Hello, this is John Doe. Interested in data? That's when Sam started ramming the door with his shoulder. Three tries and he came pouring into the joint like a bag of banged-up bricks. The very next minute, a huge wave came lifted the whole car up, and my arm was free. And I remember thinking, holy crap, I'm sure I felt someone lift me then. Someone saved me. We've got The Lip, a New Zealand podcast that collects compelling true stories. The death of soul legend Sam Cooke, as told by Disgraceland. It's a true crime podcast involving some of the biggest names in music. Plus NPR's Hidden Brain on how babies can communicate without words. And The Tip-Off takes you behind the Panama Papers and other major media scoops. That's all coming up, and you can get in touch by email at pods at radionz.co.nz. On Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. Or you can record and send in voice messages using RNZ's Vox Pop app. If you enjoy true stories told with a distinctively New Zealand flavour, then I reckon you're going to like The Lip. Pinky put me onto it. She emailed about this independent, locally produced podcast she's hooked on after just three episodes because of the, quote, compelling local stories beautifully told. I listened to a few episodes myself and I reckon she's onto something. In a moment, I'll speak to the Lips creator, journalist Megan McChesney, about the challenges of making an independent podcast in New Zealand. But first, I want to play you some of it. Here's part of the Lips' first episode. It's called Murder Under the Mountain, and it tells the story of Barbara Bishop, who's just seen one of her friends, Nikki Goodwin, being murdered. So now the killers want to get rid of Barbara too. It's pretty grim in places and it deals with violence, but here's an excerpt that just alludes to that. We drove into the township of Opanaki and the street lights were on, some of the shop fronts lights were on, I think it was about midnight. And we drove out to the beach cliff top and I knew where we were because I'd been there before. And Mark Goodwin got out of the car, dragged Nikki out of the back seat. And then I heard them whispering again because Jan York had followed us in the other car. So they took Nikki out of the back and Mark came into the driver's seat again. And he said, 
oh, well, we can't have that still on your arms. So he ripped the tape off my arms, dragged me over into the front seat, and said, there you go, Barb, you can go home now, and shut the door. And I was like, is he really going to leave me there? Oh, my God. Really? No, the car started moving. I tried the handbrake. I tried pushing the foot on the brakes. I tried everything to stop that car. Nah, wouldn't stop. And then I was flying over the cliff. <sighs> Onto the rocks below. Mark and Jan's elaborate plan was to fake an accident for Barbara and Nikki, making it look like they had died after a drink and drugs bender. We will never know the exact reason why they didn't leave Nikki in the car with Barbara, but it could have had something to do with the head bashing they had already given Nikki. They didn't want an autopsy to reveal that her head injuries had not been caused by the crash. Whatever their reasoning, one thing was for sure. Barbara's chances of survival were now minuscule. The cliffs at Opanaki dropped 25 metres, that's 82 feet, into the famously wild west coast, the rocky, riptidal, untamable, dangerous west coast. When I went sailing over the cliff, I think I was in a lot of disbelief, like, is this really happening? I felt, when the car left the cliff, I felt like a little a jerking, and then when the car landed, it landed almost vertical and then rolled onto its roof. Openaker Beach is a rocky beach with huge boulders down the bottom as well. So, yeah, I'm very lucky when I hit it that I didn't hit a huge boulder and it would have caved in everything. It landed in like a, a flattish, rocky place. I felt the jarring as it hit and then I felt my body roll and then I just like couldn't believe I was alive for a start and then I was just like right how am I going to get out of this my arm was trapped under the car door because the window had been open when the car landed the door opened a bit and my arm was actually stuck between the door and the car the full weight of the car was lying on my arm, crushing it. I didn't feel the pain for a start. It wasn't till a little bit after that I felt the pain. But I do remember, because I was a smoker at the time, I found my smoke, so I was so excited. <laughs> There's a smoke, yay, where's my lighter? Oh, damn it, he took it, damn it. As the hours passed and knowing that the tide would soon be coming in, Barbara became increasingly desperate. Lying in that car trapped, I felt a lot of um, anger towards them. And I remember thinking, they're not going to get away with this. I'm going to get out of this and I'm going to get them. Um, but I was also trying to be practical, like, how can I get out of this? And I thought, like, if I cut my wrist off, I can pull my arm out, so I grabbed some shattered windshield, tried to cut that. These are the things that go through your head when you're in survival mode. Oh, I'll just chop my wrist off, it'll be fine. It didn't work. Her arm remained trapped, and the stark reality of her situation began to wash over her, like the incoming tide. The tide started coming in when it was still dark, so I didn't 
see it coming. I could hear the waves coming in and then, of course, you started getting a bit of water from the waves. And I do remember thinking, um, oh, God, well, this is it. Oh, well, say goodbye to the whole family. I said goodbye to everybody. Um, but the waves started getting higher and higher. And I do remember holding my breath and thinking, oh, God, I'll just take a gulp, of, I'll just take a gulp in and it'll be over quick. The very next minute, and this is serious, the very next minute, a huge wave came in, lifted the whole car up, and my arm was free. And I remember thinking, holy crap, I'm sure I felt someone lift me then. Someone saved me. I like to believe it was Nikki. Episode 1, Murder Under the Mountain. And here's another short clip from The Lip, episode 14, called The Book Thief. It's about a band called Dennis Gallagher and the steps he took to rescue some of his prized book collection just after the Christchurch earthquake of February 2011, with his home cut off and inaccessible behind a red zone cordon. I really wanted my books. I truly believed that that building would be taken down with prejudice and I wasn't willing to accept that. But there were military patrols to keep people out of harm's way and to prevent looting. We could see that the cordon was coming together and getting more efficient and, you know. But we kept talking about it and trying to come up with plans. And so it was that five days after the quake, Dennis found himself hiding in Hagley Park in the dead of night, about to launch a well-thought-out plan of action to steal his own books from his own apartment, right under the nose of a military blockade. I dressed in black. I had a black athletic bag and I had stuffed into it those cloth bags that you get at the supermarket. I took along an extra pair of tennis shoes. There was no light in the park itself, so it was completely black in there. I crept up at that point to try to reconnoiter what was going on. I basically knew that at some point I had to come out of the park, cross the Avon River, cross Park Terrace to get into the building to do what I wanted to do but there were military patrols. There were three soldiers stationed on the little walking bridge. So I snuck up on those three guys behind a utility shed where they couldn't see me. I just wanted to listen to them and see if they were active and alert or if they were just kind of relaxed and not paying attention. And they were just three young guys chatting about what 20-year-old guys chat about. I walked back into the darkness again and came down to the river and found a location where there were a lot of huge trees that had fallen over and they were all quite close to the edge of the river. So I stopped there and I began to watch and I stayed for about two hours and I just watched to see how frequently the military patrols went up and down Park Terrace, long enough to see that nobody was patrolling on this side of the river, long enough to get the sense that the three guys down on the bridge to my left were kind of relaxed. And after watching for a long time, I thought, well, this is probably enough. I should probably cross. But right about then, my cell phone, which I'd turned the sound off, but it was still on vibrate mode, started making a buzzing that sounded to me like everybody from here to Amberley could hear it. It was enormous. I thought, oh my God. So I pulled my phone out, and it was Colette, and she wanted to know if I'd gotten in yet. And I said, nope, but I'm going now. So there was no way around it. The difficult part was not to get across the river, because it's only... 30 centimeters deep, 
but to get up across Park Terrace because it was still lit. The streetlights were still on, and as I said, patrols were infrequently running up and down. So I pulled my pant legs up, waded through the river, got to the other side, took off those tennis shoes, hung them on the outside of my bag, and put on my dry tennis shoes. And I was in reeds then, so I was hidden down in the reeds by the side of the river. And then I could see the soldiers on the bridge couldn't see me making the crossing because there were intervening trees. But now it was time to get up out of the other side of the river and walk across Park Terrace in the light. And there was no way around it. It was going to be a matter of luck. From episode 14 of The Lip called The Book Thief, and The Lip's creator, Megan McChesney, told me how she started making this independent local podcast. I am a print journo by trade. I started out in newspapers, the Auckland Star, which isn't around anymore, and the Taranaki Herald, and then the New Zealand Herald. But I went into magazines about two decades ago and stayed. Back in about 2013, as you know, the internet, great disruptor, a wonderful thing, but it's disrupted so much, including traditional media. And there had been waves and waves of redundancies going through our building for quite a while, and then in 2013, it was my time to walk the plank. And I started freelancing, but I also knew that I kind of wanted to do something else and something a little bit exciting and something out of my comfort zone. And I did realise after a while that I was a mad podcastaholic and that there was something about podcasts that just, God, what's the word? It just kind of, they kind of just hit my heart. I just couldn't get enough of them. And I thought, you know, I could do that. I have no audio experience whatsoever, but I've got all the storytelling chops, you know, having been a magazine journalist for, for decades. And one of my big passions in magazine journalism is telling the extraordinary stories of everyday people, you know, like the kind of magazines that I worked for, there was a big celebrity content, and that's fine and that's fun. But for me, what really, really flipped my burger was these amazing stories that somebody, you know, that, that somebody's telling from their heart of an experience that they have lived. And I kind of thought, well, you know, I might give this a bash. You've got a great ability to tell a story, I've got to say, but how did you actually find these people? Where did you look for them? Some of them were stories that I was already aware of from my days in print journalism, like episode one, Murder Under the Mountain. That story was so powerful, and I remembered it so well, from a little magazine that I used to edit called Lucky Break. And I thought, you know, I'm going to see if Barbara wants to tell her story in audio format. So some of them were ones that I was already aware of. Other ones are just ones that I, you know, you know what it's like. You read the paper. As a journalist, you read a paper all the time. You're always you're always looking for little leads. And it's amazing how many little stories you can pick up from newspapers, magazines, just generally around the internet. How did you get word of the podcast out there? I've seen you've got some great reviews on iTunes, for example. How did it grow? Really organically. You know, one of the funniest things that happened to me was I think I've been going for about two or three months and, you know, I think the first episode I got something like 340 listens in that first month. And considering I didn't have a platform, I was starting from absolute scratch, I was quite chuffed with that. You know, because I had really no publicity 
to you know to, to, you know to go on I think I did a little bit of Facebook advertising to try to get the word out but I figured eventually if it was good enough people the you know word of mouth would happen and people would start to listen and then about I think at about the third month suddenly I checked my statistics on SoundCloud and um, I'd suddenly doubled in listens and I thought oh this is weird where's that come from and I actually <laughs> I actually sent SoundCloud a message saying I think I might have a virus. <laughs> I've um, I've suddenly got all these listens that I can't work out where they've come from, and so they you know, they fossicked around and got back got back to me and said, no, 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 you're fine, everything's normal. And um, then I suddenly realised, oh, right. So what I hoped was going to happen actually did happen, and people are starting to talk about it. What had happened was that there's these little Facebook groups around of people who are mad about podcasts and there was this one Facebook group that somebody had mentioned my podcast in and so everyone else in that group had started listening and that had just kind of snowballed from there. When you're just a little indie you kind of go please listen to me, please listen to me. (laughs) Yeah it's it's difficult but Facebook is amazing like that, Um, social media is amazing like that. If people love you and they get passionate about you they do want to sing you from the from the rooftops. So it sounds like you went into this project with a kind of storytelling itch you needed to scratch but has it actually turned into a way for you to make any money or to cover your costs or how does the financial side of things stack up? At the moment it's definitely more than anything a passion that I hope will grow into something that I don't think is ever going to make me rich. I think that it would be really, really nice if it made me enough money that I could get by on it. I guess the two avenues I can see in the future for revenue are one, NZ On Air, because these are absolutely riveting stories about everyday New Zealanders from every walk of life, from all over the country. I fly all over the country to interview them face to face. But the other obvious avenue is advertising. And there are now starting to be these businesses and international businesses popping up where they offer advertising to smaller podcasts like mine, where they might, you know, you know, there'll be an advertiser who wants a certain reach, and so they might gather together five smaller podcasts and get them all to run that one ad. You know, you can sign up for little businesses like that. So that's something to consider long term as well. You haven't had kind of MailChimp on the phone or any well-known brands of mattress? (laughs) Not yet, but here's hoping. (laughs) (laughs) The Lips host and creator Megan McChesney. Megan's also prepared a list of some of her favourite podcasts with a brief description of each on our website now. Just go to radionz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour and you can also find details of how to listen to more of The Lip and subscribe. And finally, thanks for the listening recommendation to Pinky and for putting us onto The Lip and let me know when you next hear something good at pods at radionz.co.nz. Disgraceland bills itself as a true crime podcast involving some of the biggest names in music. Stars like Jerry Lee Lewis, Sid Vicious, Tupac Shakur and James Brown. Host Jake Brennan brings infamous events to life with his entertaining prose, using a little bit of poetic licence along the way to take us right inside the action. And this is the episode about soul superstar Sam Cooke. 
The circumstances surrounding soul singer Sam Cooke's death have long been shrouded in mystery. The mafia did it. His jealous wife did it. The racist music industry industrial complex did it. Truth is, Sam Cooke did it. His own actions were the reason he was shot and killed. By a woman he had just physically attacked for no good reason other than the fact that he wasn't accustomed to being told no. Sam Cooke was an infinitely skilled performer, producer, and businessman. His talent afforded him things beyond the material world, earthly delights that eluded mere mortals. Sam Cooke could have whatever and whoever he wanted. And Sam Cooke made great music, some of the greatest music ever made, as a matter of fact. The music you heard at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Slow Fox Tremolo Organ MK2. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Ringo by the actor-turned-singer, Lauren Green. And why would I play you that specific slice of Bonanza-inspired cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on December 11th, 1964. And that was the day that Sam Cooke, a.k.a. Mr. Wonderful, pulled his brand-new red Ferrari out onto the 405 and sped fast toward the airport, kicking into gear what would become the last hours of his very short, very successful life. On this episode, slow fox tremolo organs, speeding red Ferraris, bonanza-inspired cheese, and Mr. Wonderful, Sam Cooke. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Now, I agonise a bit about how much to play you of this, so just a warning, I've beeped out any bad swears, but the later events in Sam Cooke's life at the Hacienda Motel in LA do involve him getting shot, spoiler alert, so there is a little bit of violence. Sam Cooke's Ferrari hit the valet at Martoni's in Hollywood sometime on the evening of December 10th, 1964. He'd meant to get dinner, but never made it to the table from the bar. He'd been swarmed by friends and hangers-on. The drinks were flowing, and Sam was leading the bar in sing-along after sing-along until a pretty young woman in one of the booths caught his eye. Sam was at her side in no time with a drink. She was just as tight, and of course, he was hers. With Sam's energy now focused on the task at hand, the vibe in the bar had died down. A change of scenery was needed, so it was decided they'd hit PJs over on Santa Monica. Now, after midnight... Sam was at least four or five martinis deep. The woman, Eliza Boyer, was stunning, even more so around closing time, and was garnering attention from other men besides Sam. This did not please Mr. Wonderful. A fight nearly ensued. the bars. Let's get some privacy. The two jumped in Sam's Ferrari and were out on the 405 in no time. He was driving fast, heading out of town. Where were they going? Aliza was staying downtown. And don't worry about that. Relax. Enjoy the ride. Aliza was worried. She told Sam she wanted to get out. He was clearly drunk, driving like a lunatic, and pulling off of a bottle of scotch, and apparently headed somewhere out by the airport. She had no idea where. But Sam had an idea. The Hacienda Hotel. It was perfect. That little place that the Sims twins first told him about. Remote. Quiet, cheap, 
and indiscriminate of color or marital status. No last call Lotharios to loosen the vibe while trying to get little Miss Strange to help him blow off his steam. But Eliza seriously wasn't having it. It didn't matter. She'd come around. They always did. He was Sam Cook. And this next section takes you right there inside the Hacienda Motel's reception with Sam Cook and the motel's manager, Bertha Lee Franklin. Sam snapped. He grabbed Bertha Lee by the shoulders and started shaking her. The struggle intensified. The phone fell to the floor. Bertha Lee tried biting, scratching. Sam threw her to the ground and pounced, still naked and even more enraged. But Bertha Lee was able to get out from under him and wobble to her feet. She knew where the gun was. It was there for a reason. This reason. To fend off some wild-eyed, horny, drunk fool in the middle of the night. She grabbed the 22 resting on the television, and as Sam started to come at her again, she aimed and pulled the trigger. The first shot whistled over his head. The second passed his shoulder. And the third straight into the heart of Cupid. Stunned, Sam Cook looked up at Bertha Lee Franklin and said, Lady, you shot me. Sam fell to his knees and for a moment seemed subdued. But then, in a last burst of adrenaline, attacked Bertha Lee again. This time would be his last. She could sense that life was a fleeting proposition for this naked fool and showed mercy. She dropped the gun, grabbed a broom, and gave Sam a simple oops upside the head to keep him at bay. It was all that was needed. He fell over and died. The official cause of death, a shot to the heart. And there's plenty more to that episode of Disgraceland called Sam Cook, an insatiable libido and a justifiable homicide. There's 12 episodes in season one and more new ones coming out every few weeks from now until the end of October. You'll find details of where to listen on our website now. That's rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. So what have you been listening to lately? Richborn and Megan's podcast on ZDM. <laughs> it's so good. I just listened to Serial, one called Criminal. Freakonomics radio is pretty hard to beat. Um, so one of the ones I've been listening to is called 21 Elephants. Do any of you guys listen to podcasts? Yeah. Oh, I don't want to no, that's okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your time. I was listening to The Guilty Feminist quite a bit and also This American Life. Just like really like the Joe Rogan experience, which is just a really popular podcast. I listen to quite a few podcasts from the daily and this other podcast which I've come across which is amazing it's called Ologies The Nine Club and The Bunt Oh definitely Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history I just think from what I've found when I've tried to get into them is that they have these kind of weird American things they talk too fast The Bunt Reply All and then there's like this one called Short Story Long I really like, actually, the Radio New Zealand podcast, Bang. The Waking Up podcast by Sam Harris. Tonight, 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 oh, 
Thanks too to all those who sent in their listening recommendations. Jackie emailed pods at radionz.co.nz and mentioned Death in Ice Valley. That's a true crime podcast set in Norway. Well, we're featuring that show uh, soon. Plus, I'm speaking to John Manell, who commissioned it and who's the podcast editor of the BBC's World Service, about making it, the feedback it got and the longevity of the true crime genre. We're also on Twitter at RNZ Podcast Hour and Sam tweeted us some recommendations, including Ear Hustle. Uh, we featured that last week. Sam also Caliphate, which is a New York Times podcast all about ISIS. And just a few hours ago, actually, I spoke to Rukmini Kalamaki, the foreign correspondent who hosts the show, and Andy Mills, who produced it about audio and the role of journalism. That interview will be up in a few weeks. Sam also recommended Sleep With Me, a podcast designed to help you sleep. I'm talking to Drew Ackerman, a.k.a. Dearest Scooter, next week. So that's coming up soon, too. Apparently, New Zealand is one of the podcast's big growth markets. So please do keep those listening recommendations coming. Pods at radionz.co.nz is the address. The tip-off takes you behind the scenes of the biggest investigative journalism scoops in the news today. It's just won the award for Best New Podcast at the British Podcast Awards, and each week, host Maeve McLennigan speaks to journalists about the background and sometimes painstaking research behind some major stories. It's a UK show, so big issues there tend to dominate, with recent stories about knife crime and the abuse of the prescription tranquilizer Xanax, for example. But there's an international dimension to many of the stories too. Here's some of episode 7, codename Prometheus, and it's all about the Panama Papers. Today's story is a relay race. In reality, it involved more than 300 reporters across six continents. But we're going to focus on just three journalists. My name is Bastian Obermeier and I'm the deputy head of the investigative department of Süddeutsche Zeitung. We start with Bastian. He works for the German paper Süddeutsche Zeitung. And in the past, he's written about illicit arms deals, sexual abuse by priests, and Nazi war criminals. But in early 2015, he was about to start down another path, one that would lead to the biggest story of his career. And it started with just eight words on a screen. Hello, this is John Doe. Interested in data? Well, on the first moment, I um, was a little curious and uh, and interested. That was a message Bastian received one day. A message from an anonymous source. It was quickly followed by more. My life is in danger. We will only chat over encrypted files. No meeting ever. Intrigued. Bastian started to message the source regularly. I agreed to receive uh, more documents. In the next messages that I received from the source, I I uh, also got some um, some more and, uh, and more documents later. Then, you know, after some days um, when I received more and more and more i i understood that this this could be a really good story the files he received were a jumble of things emails legal documents newspaper clippings but they were all coming from one law firm a company called mossack fonseca 
Realising this was far too big a project for just him and his fellow colleagues, he turned to the ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Bastian had worked with them on stories about big leaks before. But it was not not clear to any of us that how big this could humanly possibly become. So um, but I was still a little careful. I wasn't sure if they would do the story because we did a lot of tax projects before uh, and, you know, hidden money in offshore centers or whatever. So I wasn't sure if they would do the story at all. Head of the ICIJ, Gerald Ryle, flew to Germany to meet Bastian. But at this point, all they had was about 100 gigabytes of data. Now, that was a tiny drop in the ocean compared to the 2.6 terabytes they'd end up with at the end. And at first, the ICIJ weren't exactly jumping out of their seats with excitement. As often happens with the very early days of these leak projects, you're never entirely sure of what you have. Let's leave Bastion in Munich and move more than 4,200 miles west to Washington, D.C., Here we find Will Fitzgibbon, a reporter at the ICIJ. Will had worked on big leak stories before, and he knew that a load of paperwork didn't necessarily mean there's a great story there. So the response to Bastian's data was fairly muted, cautious. That was until one day when Will was interrupted from his work by a whoop of delight. Cry of enthusiasm came out of the office. His boss had been sifting through some of those files. I think that was when he first had stumbled across the passport of a family member related to the president of Syria. The thinking there being that if this is a law firm and an offshore industry in which members of the Syrian presidential family are using their services, then there's a high chance that there are going to be other interesting characters in there as well. Bastian remembers a similar moment when the name and the data made him realise they were onto something too. When I saw the best friend of Vladimir Putin in the data, uh, when I googled his name and found out that this guy that is in connection to several offshore companies and millions of dollars, when I saw that this guy is the best friend of Vladimir Putin, I realised this is, this is going to be a big story. So this big jumble of paperwork, it looked like it could actually lead to something, something big. Excited, the network launched into gear. But we've dallied here too long. Time to hop back across the Atlantic. Now we're heading for the offices of The Guardian newspaper, just north of King's Cross in London. Holly Watt had only joined The Guardian a few months earlier. She'd been busy learning everyone's names, settling in, when one day, a colleague pulled her aside and mentioned a company she'd never heard of. It was actually quite awkward the first time I heard about it because um, some one of my colleagues came to me and sort of took me off to a quiet room to have a word about it. And we started talking about this company called Mossack Fonseca. And I don't think I was particularly unusual in the world at that point to have literally never heard of them. Um, so I sort of nodded my way through it and I kind of like, yes, no, of course, of course. Uh, and I really had no idea what they were talking about. The Guardian had secured a place in the ICIJ's network and they'd just heard about this new dump of data. So Holly was pulled into a small team and they were squirrelled away into a side office. 
The same office, in fact, where journalists had dug into the leaks from Edward Snowden just a few years earlier. We were we were working out of a room which actually is just it looks out over the canal in King's Cross, which which is lovely actually, and um, uh, you know it's a beautiful view actually. Okay, so at this point the network is engaged, everyone is excited, and new data was being leaked to Bastion all the time. But how do you share such a huge quantity of data with so many people around the world? Well, thankfully, the ICIJ had worked on huge projects before, and so they had the technology. It's, I think, important to remember that the Panama Papers didn't come out of nowhere. ICIJ and our partners, including The Guardian and Süddeutsche Zeitung, have been doing leak-based offshore projects for a number of years, since 2013. So because of that, the ICIJ data team had already built up certain technological infrastructure. One piece of software was called the iHub, a kind of Facebook for journalists, where reporters from all across the network could chat and share their findings. Another key programme was a system called Blacklight, that was a depository for all that data that Bastian had been given. That allows you to pretty much use it as a Google search and search keywords from within those files. So in the case of Panama Papers, the 11.5 million documents actually came to us over the course of months. And each time they arrived, the ICIJ data team would take them, upload them onto a server and make those available through this Blacklight program which is a secure web address, passwords and logins of which we share with our partners around the world, which means that at any given time, you'll have a journalist in New Zealand, Pakistan, Senegal and Chile all tapping away to see what kind of findings relevant to their own country they can find. And thanks to Maeve McLennigan of The Tip-Off for letting me play that to you. NPR's hidden brain combines science and storytelling and uses them to understand our unconscious choices and biases and how these can shape our behaviour. Here's a recent example I enjoyed that explores the way that babies can communicate without using words. This is Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. There's a video on YouTube you might have seen. It has nearly 200 million views. In this video, a pair of twin brothers are standing in a kitchen having a little chat. These twin brothers are diaper-clad babies. Now, if this video featured 10-year-old twins or adult twins, I guarantee you it wouldn't have gone viral. What makes this video special is that we have no clue what these babies are saying. To us non-babies, it sounds like gobbledygook. Cute, mysterious, gobbledygook. Here at Hidden Brain, we love trying to understand the puzzles and contradictions of human behavior. But we spend most of our time talking about the older members of the human race. Today, we focus on the younger set. The much younger set. I find babies are so impressive. We can't really ask them what they're thinking. We have to come up with clever ways of figuring out what's going on in their little brains. 
We'll meet some of the researchers trying to decipher the behavior of babies. Oh, oh, you, oh, that's a ball. Yep, you're right. Do babies understand us when we're talking to them? That's a ball. You tried to say ball. That's great. And how babies communicate, even if they don't have words. <laughs> the Language of Babies, this week on Hidden Brain. The show visits a childcare centre and a lab to see how very young children use non-verbal communications like music and dance to understand the world around them. Here's Hidden Brain's host, Shankar Vedantam, again. Music and dance aren't the only ways adults and small kids communicate with one another. There's another language that actually sounds a lot like language. <laughs> The traditional way of looking at babbling, um, even as recently as 15, 20 years ago, was really that it was just motor practice, that it had no bearing on later language. It was just something babies did to exercise their mouths. This is Rachel Albert. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. She studies infant language development. Those quote-unquote traditional views on babbling? Rachel says, toss them out. When babies babble, um, they're indicating that they're either um, in a heightened state of arousal or by actually babbling, they're increasing their arousal level and putting themselves in kind of this optimal state of, of being ready to learn over and above than if they were just quietly looking at an object. Rachel says babbles have a certain je ne sais quoi. Bonjour toutes et tous, je m'appelle Madame Macron. When she hears a baby babble, she's taken back to high school French class. And I had one of those immersive French teachers who would only speak French in the classroom. And so it was really like being dropped into a, a non-native environment where you have to kind of figure things out. I vividly remember that she would come into the classroom and she would um, start talking and the whole class would kind of have blank stares of panic um, as she would go. And so she'd start slowing down her speech and pointing and labeling particular objects in the room. So she would, in French, be kind of pointing and saying, you know, are you sitting in a desk? Regardez le bureau. Look at the desk. Here's a desk. Voici le bureau. And kind of repeating those key vocabulary words until we started to figure out, oh, okay, this is the word for desk. Bureau, bureau, bureau. And I thought, well, this must be somewhat similar to what a baby experiences, right, where there's all this conversation going blah, around. Blah, blah, blah. Um, they start to become blah, active blah, communication blah, partners and trying to blah, engage blah, in that world. But how do they make sense of it? Parents often see themselves as the know-it-all French teacher and the babbling baby as the clumsy student. Rachel says this framework is the one that's mostly used in studying infant language development. But the baby is playing as much of a role in this interaction as the mom. By changing the way that they babble and what they're looking at might actually be changing their opportunities for learning because they're changing what the parents say. It's kind of a, what we call a social feedback loop. So when the baby babbles, mom responds. The way mom responds actually will change in real time what the child says next. And they go around and around in this conversation, influencing each other. There's a word to describe a back-and-forth exchange where the thing that one person says affects what another person says. This feedback loop of communication and learning is what we call language. Ah. 
Babies make as many as 1,000 vocalizations every day. On average, parents respond to about 60% of these babbles. Even just silently responding, if the mom just acknowledges the infant's vocalization with a touch, leans in, smiles, and touches the baby, the infant will immediately, within the span of just 10 minutes, start to produce more speech-like vocalizations. So that just that nonverbal feedback, that acknowledgement of the baby's vocalization, changes in the moment how they're babbling. Rachel says that when babies are babbling, they are more receptive to new information. Parents can take advantage of this by having conversations with their baby. And one rule of being a good conversationalist, stay attentive to what your partner is saying. So parents that are um, just talking constantly about irrelevant things that aren't what their child's looking at. For example, if a baby's looking at a ball and I'm talking about this this cup over here that I'm playing with, well, you're actually providing mismatching communication, uh, mismatching information for them. That's going to make it harder to learn. Rachel says if you listen closely, babbling often falls into four distinct categories. They have different sounds, and they elicit different responses. The first type is called... QRV. QRV is the, the least mature infant vocalization. So it sounds for quasi-resonant vocalization. And so it's those really kind of um, nasal, creaky, kind of sounds that a lot of times parents interpret almost as fussing. The second type is called FRV. So that's a fully resonant vowel, and um, around three or four months, the baby's vocal tract opens up, and then they're able to produce those more open, um, kind of adult-like sounding vowels that kind of have those O's or ah quality. Um, and so parents recognize those as more speech-like than those first creaky nasalized vowels, and so they're more likely to respond to those. The third is called MSFR. So that's a marginal syllable, and um, babies will start around six or so months um, throwing consonants into the mix. So you can hear in that sound there's kind of a DJ kind of sound, but it's, it's a slow, drawn-out transition between when the consonant stops and when the vowel begins. And the pinnacle, the pièce de résistance, if you will... So that's what's called a canonical syllable. And um, those are those nice babas and dadas that parents naturally associate with babbling. And so babies start regularly producing those um, pretty frequently around nine months. Um, and parents react very strongly to, to these canonical syllables. Um, they hear them as the most speech-like. They tend to often interpret them as approximations of words. So, you know, in that example, if a baby was holding a ball, um, a mom would be very likely to respond, oh, oh, you, oh, that's a ball. Yep, you're right. That's a ball. You tried to say ball. That's great. To Rachel, these different vocalizations are endlessly fascinating. Now that she knows how to tell apart the QRVs from the FRVs and the MSFRs from the canonical syllables, she simply can't stop herself. On my wedding day, I remember very distinctly, I was in graduate school at the time and knee-deep in coding this all the time, spending hours listening to these different sounds. And I remember being up at the front of the church about to say my vows and hearing some babies out in the audience babble and kind of immediately coding it and going, oh, that was a marginal syllable. Um, and then thinking, no, focus. This is this is a very important moment. You're supposed to be attending to, to what your pastor's saying. Um, but I couldn't help but have my attention pulled by the baby in the audience and, uh, and trying to code what she was saying. You don't have to memorize all the jargon to take away something valuable from the research. 
Just knowing that when babies are babbling, they're ready to learn, that can be a useful takeaway for everyone. NPR's Hidden Brain. And that story, Baby Talk, Decoding the Secret Language of Babies, was originally published on May the 14th, 2018. And thanks to NPR's Jenna Molster for her help in sharing that story with you. And that's about it from the podcast hour for now. Just a reminder, you've been listening to The Lip, Disgraceland, NPR's Hidden Brain and The Tip-Off. And you'll find more details about all of these shows on our website now. That's at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour along with details of how to contact us. From me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.